following podcast contains explicit language. For decades, social psychologist Arthur Aaron and his wife, Dr. Elaine Aaron, have been studying romantic love and attempting to create it in a laboratory. In their most famous study, a heterosexual man and woman enter a lab through separate doors. And then they sit down face to face and spend the next 90 minutes asking each other a series of increasingly personal questions, 36 of them. And then they stare into each other's eyes without speaking for a terrifying four minutes. Two participants from the study were apparently married six months later. The study tells the story of love that's simple that perhaps you can fall in love with anyone if you just put 90 minutes of work into it. Years after reading about the study, Mandy Len Katrin tried it. She was at a bar on something she thought might have been a date. And the experience of doing it changed her life. Not because she fell in love with the guy, though she did, but because she wrote about the experience as a modern love column in the New York Times. This is YOY. I'm Andrea Salenzi. And the article Mandy wrote, you might remember it. It was called To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. And it included the 36 questions from that 1997 Arthur Aaron study. And in 2015, it was one of the top five most popular New York Times pieces of that year, one of the most emailed stories in the paper's history. Now, the 36 questions are everywhere. There are follow-up stories about couples who fell in love doing this, couples who divorced by doing the 36 questions. You can download apps on your phone to do the questions. There's even a young adult novel all about the 36 questions. There is even a new podcast, a musical podcast from Two Up Productions about a couple trying to save their marriage with the questions. Oh, I get it. He's nodding his head. The 36 questions. The 36 questions. Well, it's definitely a poetic gesture. You and I fell in love when we did the 36 questions two years ago. Why wouldn't it work twice? So joining me now is Mandy Lynn Katrin, who wrote the original Modern Love column and teaches English and creative writing at the University of British Columbia. She's joining me from a Vancouver studio to discuss her new book, How to Fall in Love with Anyone. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Tell us about the origins of those 36 questions. How did you stumble into them as a love researcher? So basically... I decided to start researching romantic love uh, about a year or so after my parents got divorced. The whole process really caused me to question a lot of my assumptions about love and how it worked. And I was at the time in a relationship that was really, I deeply loved my partner. I mean, just like it was this really intense kind of love. And yet we argued all the time and I never felt like I knew that I wanted to spend my life with this person. And so I think, you know, my origins as a love researcher are really just like basic pragmatism about like how to make good decisions about my own relationship because I felt like the information that I needed, like there weren't any stories about what it's like to be in a pretty good but not great relationship and how to decide whether or not to stay in that relationship And so I just turned to pretty much any information that I could find that existed within the world of knowledge outside of folk wisdom or intuition or stories. Like I wanted hard data. 
And um, what I came across in that process was this study by a psychologist named Arthur Aaron. And I remember reading about this and feeling like, huh, that's super interesting, but I'm very skeptical about the possibility of just generating romantic love between strangers. And that was kind of it. And then I think maybe three years after that and after that long tenure relationship that I was in finally ended, I was out on a date one night with an acquaintance and he said, I have this theory that you can fall in love with anyone. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if that's true. And I remembered the study and I told him about it. And I thought he was like, kind of cute. So I was like, oh, you know, I've always wanted to try it. And he was like, let's do it. And so we did. And the interesting context there is that it was a situation where you weren't even sure it was a date (laughs) while you're embarking on this process. Yeah, I had no idea, actually. Because like I, I knew him and I sort of saw, kind of watched his life on social media. And, and so I thought that he had a girlfriend and I was sort of dating someone at the time that I was really interested in. And so I just thought, ah, whatever, we'll just see what happens. And yeah, it worked out really well, actually. <laughs> so for someone who missed the column because they were under a rock January 2015, could you give us a sense of what the questions are like? Do you have favorites? So they start out really sort of simple, like the kinds of questions you might answer at like an icebreaker. So they're like, if you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, who would it be? But they get increasingly more personal. And that's kind of the point. And like, really, the questions could be about anything as long as they have what the researchers call sustained escalating reciprocal personal self-disclosure. <laughs> so <laughs> Wait, so you have that so memorized now. <laughs> I know. So sustain. So you've got to do it over like a a confined period of time, I think. Like you have to have this sense of doing all the questions at once, I guess. Escalating. So they start fairly innocuous and become much more intimate as you go along. Reciprocal. So you're both doing it and you take turns. And we made a point of taking turns each answering first, which I think is a good way to do it. Personal. So they have to be actually like about you. And then self-disclosure, which, yeah, personal self-disclosure. So you're revealing things about yourself. So the actual questions might not be a magical potion that helps you fall in love. It, it might just be this system and you could almost write your own questions. Absolutely. Yeah. The one thing that I think is really important is that there are questions sort of sprinkled throughout that ask you to compliment the person you're with or like say thoughtful things about them. And to me, those were the the scariest. I think because I'm, you know, I write about my own life. I was very comfortable talking about myself and revealing things about myself, but like revealing my interest in the other person was so intimidating. So I think that is important. Yeah, there's a nice moment where he's like, where he compliments your legs and you're like, oh, this might be a romantic thing now. Yeah, it totally shifted my (laughs) feelings about the evening. I also love the really morbid one. Do you have a secret hunch about how you'll die? Yeah, I really liked that one, too, because I didn't realize I had a secret hunch about how I would die until I had to answer that question. And I think the self-discovery is like an important part of the whole process because it's fun, because you're learning about this other person, but also about yourself. Why do you think it had the impact it did when it showed up in modern love at the moment it did? 
Uh, I have a lot of theories about this. I mean, I've thought about this so much. It's interesting to me to hear you say that people are still mentioning it to you all the time because, yes. of course, they're mentioning it to me all the time, but I have no <laughs> sense of, like, it's life outside of me. I honestly think about conversations I have about dating as before that column came out and after because it's it's really that frequently. And I think a lot of people would remember exactly where they were in their relationships at that moment because you had to decide if you were going to do it or not. This is so interesting for me to hear. (laughs) But to answer your question, you know, I think it's a couple things like number one, I think. It was appealing to feel like there was a shortcut to falling in love. And I think not just a shortcut to falling in love, but to to like deeply, intimately connecting with another person, which is, I think, what we all really want. Like we want to feel known. And I think the 36 questions sort of offer this possibility. And that's very attractive. The other thing is... I was online dating at the time, and my experience with online dating was that I had so many interactions with so many different people, which really opens up the sense of possibilities for, like, finding someone who's really a good match for you. But so often those interactions are really superficial, frustratingly so. And so I think this was, like, the antithesis of that in many ways. And so I think the timing probably had a lot to do with the popularity of online dating. Like, this was a way to take an online date and turn it into a more meaningful experience. Do you think we're giving the questions too much credit? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I mean, I actually think they're they're really an amazing tool, but often often I feel conflicted about the fact that I'm still in a relationship with the guy that I did the questions with because I think it oversells the questions a little bit. I wonder how it would have changed it if the story hadn't turned out so lovely. You know, what's interesting is that initially I submitted the article to Modern Love and we and I was like, you're probably the last paragraph is like, you're probably wondering if he and I fell in love. Well, the answer is I don't know. And it was honest because we didn't actually start a relationship until about three months after doing it. And I had written the article I don't know, probably two months after that. And so there was still a lot of ambiguity about the nature of our relationship, and I didn't want to overstate it. And I kind of liked that ending, and I never heard back. And then about a month later, when things got more serious, I felt like, God, it would be awful if this was published. And and I'm saying, I don't know if we're in love when actually we are in this committed relationship, and and we have talked about the fact that we love each other. So I revised it and sent it back to him, and he got back to me two days later and said, I'm going to publish this. So maybe it would have gotten a lot less circulation, (laughs) certainly, not even maybe. And your whole book is very much about the power of love stories in changing the way we understand love. One of my favorite pages is when you came up with a formula of the features that are present in almost every love story— And we can almost go through them one at a time. And the way I've been thinking about them is almost looking at how they appear on the television show The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. (laughs) Oh, that's so interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So it, it starts with the meeting. And the meeting involves some kind of a hint of a larger force at work, which in the Bachelor universe means you get the first impression, Rose. 
Oh, uh uh-huh. I like this. Okay. Step two is awareness of love. So there's always a a meal or conversation on The Bachelor where they say, I think I'm falling in love with you. I'm starting (laughs) to fall in love with you. Number three is potential obstacles, usually the hometown date (laughs) where uh, you meet the parents and I'm not sure if they're going to like me. Or you realize he hasn't had a serious relationship in his life and he's 37 years old and you start to question. And then stage four is the union. That's my way of understanding it. But we could also fill examples from every love story forever. Yeah. Every love story forever, I think, will fit this template. And what I think it's really interesting to hear you apply it to The Bachelor because, of course, it fits this template. But it also suggests how... We, I think we have this really innate sense of what makes a good story without even necessarily ever stopping to think about it. Like we have this narrative, this like internal sense of plot. And, you know, if you look at like Romeo and Juliet, it follows the same structure. I mean, the union is then preceded by like this tragic ending, but it doesn't not have the structure. It's like the comedy love story ends with, a union that is something like a marriage and the tragedy love story ends with a union followed by death. But like every love story fits this template. And it was interesting to me when I was doing all this research that nobody had quite plotted this out yet, like not in a way that I could find that was really clear and accessible. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, what's I think really interesting is that now reality TV and also when we tell our own love stories, I think they follow the same pattern without us necessarily realizing it. Right. In the online dating world, the meeting is, I wasn't sure I was going to see him, but then suddenly I had a free Thursday or, you know, I was 15 minutes to the, late to the bar and he was in the bathroom and I thought he was the wrong guy. There's a sense of we find a way of telling these online dating stories where there is a hint at a larger force at work. Oh, The one I hear all the time is, I just signed up for Tinder and there he was. There's a sense of you were sent to me. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that, you know, the big initial resistance to online dating was that it was ruining that narrative, (laughs) that it felt like we were too in control of our own experiences of love. And now that people have kind of gotten over that, we've found ways to still enact that narrative. Like, I think we all really want to feel that there is some sort of larger force that is bringing us to this perfect person. Another great line you have in there is that dating is straddling this line between sincerity and coolness. Mm -hmm. So my dating life right now is very uncool, and my meetings are very intentional. So I'm meeting someone because I can see practical reasons why we'd be a good match. I arrive there, and I'm very direct about what I'm looking for. And I I feel like I'm not following. I'm not creating a love story. I'm just shopping. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if that bothers people that you're going on dates with. Have you gotten any feedback about this? I mean, I love that you're doing this. I I think this, ultimately this was the approach that I ended up taking as well. Uh, no, I think I just end up leaving the room without feeling anything. And I wonder if there was a a better story if I would feel more. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, you know, what's interesting is having written this whole book sort of dissecting love stories and thinking about all the ways that they do us a disservice in terms of controlling our ideas about love, it hasn't changed the fact that 
I still love a good love story and find them incredibly powerful. And I think a lot of people, when you tell them you're writing a book about love and involves research, they're immediately like, oh, my gosh, you're going to ruin love. But that has not been my experience at all. Like, these stories still matter. Right. And part of your process is a part of all of our processes for understanding love is you deeply mind your own family stories. So why do you think the stories of our parents and grandparents are so important to us as we come to understand love as a larger idea? I mean, I think for me, when I was very young, I had basically two different love stories to draw from. And one was basically any sort of Disney princess story, and they're all more or less the same, but I loved these movies and watched them all the time. And the other was my parents' love story. And so, you know, for me, I think it was really powerful. And for reasons that I didn't fully understand until I bothered to write about it and investigate it and interview my parents about their love story. So they met when my mom was a high school cheerleader in this tiny Appalachian coal mining town. And my dad was hired to be the new football coach, and she was an editor for the school newspaper, so she had to interview him. And I always just thought it was, like, the greatest story ever. There are several twists and turns, like, the obstacle in their story is basically that initially my mother sets my dad up with her older sister, so she's one of eight kids, and so the sister that's, like, two years older than her. And they had this disastrous, like, one date. And it was always so funny because knowing them now, it seems hilarious that anyone would ever think they would be good together because they're just such totally different people. And so this was a big part of our family mythology is this awful date. And then my aunt started dating my dad's best friend, who was also a football coach, And my mom started secretly dating my dad because she was a student at the school where he worked. And, like, when I was a kid, I did not think that was weird at all. And I really had to think about that as an adult. And then the four of them all get married in a double wedding at the Baptist church. And it's just, like, the best ending. And so I think it's a great story because it really fits into our this narrative of what a love story should be. But in your process, you found that there was actually a lot more nuance within that story. And I think it's kind of worth all of our time to sit down and ask our parents for those extra details sometimes. Yeah, I I was so scared to interview them. And I think because I just felt like, all right, I'm 35 and they've been divorced for almost a decade and they've moved on with their lives. And why is it that I... I'm still hung up on this story. I mean, I'm writing a freaking book about it. And I think I felt so self-conscious about that. But actually, when I interviewed them, they were so great. And I learned so much. And it was really a worthwhile experience. So, guys, call your folks. Find out the real story of how they met. Why not? We're going to take a quick break. But when we get back, I'm going to ask her if you can fall in love with anyone. How do you choose? She will actually answer that for me in a bit. And we're back with Mandy Len Katrin, the author of the new book, How to Fall in Love with Anyone. Her project was all about asking questions, and luckily today, she's answering mine. So as someone who's been researching love and writes about love, you must be asked for advice all the time. While yeah, also deeply I... questioning its value. 
I know. I feel so conflicted about this. So I actually started a relationship advice column. For the rumpus. Yeah, for the rumpus, which I've only done two of so far. I'm working on my third right now, and I'm finding it so much fun. And the, the thing that I'm doing to sort of set this apart from every other column is that I'm not saying to the person who writes the letter, like, here's an answer. <laughs> I'm instead saying, like, let me go do some research for you because I'm good at this research and I have this nice base of knowledge already. And I'll give you some facts and, like, you can sort of do with that what you want. And I think that's sort of the approach that I'm willing to take is, like, I'm not actually comfortable positioning myself as an expert, but I am comfortable positioning myself as someone who's curious about love and who has a certain amount of knowledge. And so I am often reluctant to give advice, but I definitely end up doing it. Should we all be reluctant to accept advice also? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. I mean, I think sometimes advice is really useful, but I think so often... With love, I don't know. It's just really complex and so little relationship advice, especially like relationship advice books, which I've found mostly just leave me infuriated. They just don't acknowledge that complexity. The other thing that I realized is that so much of the advice that I would have benefited from when I was trying to decide whether or not to stay in that long-term relationship, I would not have listened to if it was given to me. Yeah. Right. So then how did you make that decision? You know, you're in a relationship with someone who you'd been with since college, and you guys found yourself plagued with that kind of a fighting that comes only from cohabitation with someone who you don't see a future with anymore. Mm -hmm. And do you want to tell us a bit about how do you decide to end something with someone with whom on paper, to your families, to your dog, in the bedroom, even to you guys probably on a good night, everything was perfectly adequate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, in many ways, I felt that it was. And I don't necessarily feel that way looking back on it. But I think the biggest thing was that I never felt that I could or was invited to articulate my own needs and desires in that relationship. And I realize that now, but it, it took me a long time to figure out that actually the problem was that I didn't feel that there was space for me in that relationship. And that's why I picked so many fights with him. What I ended up doing was, number one, just a lot of research. And the real value of the research, like it was interesting to me, but the real value was in realizing that love was really an ordinary experience. Like I think so often, especially for someone like me who had only ever been in one serious relationship in her life, love feels profound and it feels like the most meaningful and important experience of our lives. And so I, part of what kept us together was this fear that probably we both had that we would never find something as profound as what we had, despite its many apparent flaws. And so a lot of the research, especially into the biology of love, helped me feel like, oh, actually, this is really ordinary, even though it feels profound. And 
is ultimately meaningful, it's also like predictable and it happens to um, most everyone over the course of their lives more than once. And it happens to like other species. And so love is this thing that we're sort of hardwired to do. And knowing that was like, okay, I can just sort of trust that this is, I will fall in love again. So that was helpful. The other thing was I just waited. There was a long period where I was like, I don't know what to do with this relationship. I'm just going to think about it and just like keep it sort of in the back of my mind. And that was hard, but I'm really glad that I I did that. I just thought I have to trust myself. Like eventually I'll figure it out. And eventually I did. Hmm. Love is ordinary. (laughs) How do you hold that idea in your head? while also holding on to all the stories we say about love and all the things that you believed about love growing up, how do you reconcile those two ideas? And also the importance of love in your life in a daily basis with your partner. Yeah. I mean, the truth is I I don't necessarily rec- reconcile them. Like, I hold these two things in constant tension. You know, I mean, I think that's the thing that I discovered with the book is that I want— to understand love stories and I want to like figure out why they have so much power over me and yet I want to be moved by them like I was on my book tour on a plane watching Dirty Dancing which I write about a little bit in the book and I was like god this movie is so good you know like there there is no point at which I'm ever gonna sort of like perfectly reconcile these two parts of myself and these two opposing relationships I have with love. And I I actually feel kind of glad about that. With your understanding of dating and relationships and love at this point, you know, this is a question I think about a lot, which is, is it more broken than ever? You know, we could blame technology. We can blame the dating apps. We could blame, you know, how we're picking later in life. And it would be so much easier if we just were assigned someone when we turned 22. Or is it better than ever? We have, I'm not being forced into an arranged marriage and there isn't a dowry for my body. Or is dating relationships love just different today, the way it's always been changing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's different. I think it's harder and I think it's better, (laughs) Um, (laughs) which is something I really kind of figured out. Okay, that's by interviewing harder, my grandmother. Better, different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so my grandmother got married when she was fifteen, and my grandfather was thirty-one. And basically, like she had sort of run away from home because she—it's a very Cinderella story. Like she had a an actual wicked stepmother. She ran away from home. She was living with some relatives, trying to like clean people's houses for money. She had dropped out of school when she was 11 because her mother got sick and she had to raise her baby brother. You know, she had this hard life. And then she met this man, this soldier returning from World War II. And shortly thereafter, they got married. And to hear her tell the story, it is like the most beautiful story it's so romantic, and she she really, like, pulls out all the stops. Like, she describes seeing my grandfather walking down the road, and she's like, he had this gold tooth that shined like new money, which is, <laughs> like, my favorite quote from the whole interview. And, and after he died, so he died when I was four, 
So she's been alone, more or less, for, for 30 years, and she's never had an intimate relationship with another man, although men have really courted her, and she's developed these close friendships over the years. She's always remained loyal to my grandfather, so I interviewed her because I wanted to understand that, and I thought maybe she understood something that I had missed in my dating life. Um, but what I realized is that actually I was really romanticizing her past. I mean, when I talked to my mother about my grandmother's story, she says, you know, I think dad saw that she needed to be taken care of and that he could take care of her. And so she sees it as this very sort of mutually beneficial relationship. Like she had a home and he had a wife, which was really useful in this tiny coal mining community. And they had this stability and then they had a family. And so she doesn't see it as this beautiful romance. And what I realized is that, you know, it's, I think, acceptable in this tiny little town to have this 16-year age gap when you're 15 and your husband is 31 because the reality is there aren't, like, life is hard. People have very few resources. They don't live particularly long time. And there aren't that many potential partners for to choose from. You sort of decide to be satisfied with that. And while you and I and many of our peers are, suffer from the opposite, which is this, like, abundance and this paradox of choice and that is incredibly frustrating. It's also, especially as a woman, just like a much better position to be in. That's why the central question of your book becomes, if you can fall in love with anyone, how do you choose well? <laughs> yeah. And I can't, I, you know, I'm so tempted to say, so how do you choose well, Mandy? <laughs> Tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And, yeah. and it's a really difficult answer. And the short answer according to the research, is choose someone who's kind and generous. And the research backs this up in lots of different ways, where, like, basically re relationship satisfaction is really more connected to those qualities than it is to attractiveness and financial stability and all these other things. Not that these things aren't important. I mean, they are. They are relevant. But I think desire is a little bit more flexible than we imagine it to be. And the first part of that question, if you can fall in love with anyone. So do, do you truly believe that that if I decided on my next Tinder date that I was going to fall in love with him, that I could almost make that happen? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. What if we did the questions, um, though? It, it would definitely not hurt. So much of your book was about examining these prepackaged social scripts that tell us about love. So how are you unpackaging them with your partner now? So the biggest thing that we've done that I just wrote about in a second Modern Love column last month is um, we've made a relationship contract and we decided to do this before he moved into my place. And I love it so much. And I, it's interesting. I've gotten a lot of skepticism about it and pushback because I think people feel like me saying I love it means that they have to love it too and they're defensive. Um, and I acknowledge that maybe it's not for everyone, but it's so valuable for me in a variety of ways. But the biggest is just that it created this occasion where we had to sit down and talk about what we each expected and what we wanted from things like large and small, like we talked about 
household chores and we talked about sex and we talked about, you know, like how to spend our weekends. And it just had the effect of making me feel like there was room for me in my relationship and that my own desires mattered and that my partner was taking them into account and that we're working toward some goals together. And we've renewed this contract now three times. And the third time we were like, oh, well, I guess we should talk about marriage, which is this thing that, you know, I've sort of made it easier for myself to talk about, even though my feelings about it are really complicated by the fact that I'm writing about it. So I'm always like, Writing about love means doing all this research, and it's easier to bring up a study in conversation with my partner than it is to bring up my feelings. And so I've sort of sublimated my feelings into these conversations about data. Um, But we were kind of like, okay, we should talk about this. And it was such a relief to have a conversation about it instead of him feeling like I was waiting for him to do a proposal and me feeling like, that this was a decision that he had to make alone and that I couldn't be a part of. And that's been really, really nice for me. You know, how has that been keeping a blog about love, writing about love, researching love, while also having a relationship with someone? I ask as a single woman in her 30s with a podcast about dating. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, I'm sure you could talk about this. Um, Yeah, it's, I've definitely benefited from it more than I have suffered from it. I mean, ultimately, like I'm an essayist and I do all this research, but the reality is I think when you're writing an essay, which is probably very similar, I imagine, to when you're making a podcast, you're doing it out of some like deep personal need that has some sort of larger, more universal implications. So like when when I'm doing all this research, I'm not I'm not going to be dishonest about the fact that it comes from this really personal question about my own relationship to romantic love, as I imagine your podcast. I mean, your podcast seems to very explicitly do that. And yet I think I benefit so much more from taking these things that I feel anxiety about and just like putting them under a microscope than I did from just feeling the secret anxiety. I don't know. How do you feel? Yeah, I agree. And I I think I'm constantly making sure those questions are sincere, you know, and and if they ever became a thing that I was asking just because I needed material for a next episode, then it's time for me to do a podcast about whales, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the show would be so much less good if it didn't have this real, like, personal, I think bringing the personal to bear on the ideological is what makes the ideological matter. Lucky for us, the subject matter means that we'll probably never run out of episodes. Right? Yeah, when, yeah, yeah exactly. or post to write, or, you know, research to find. Love is probably one of the oldest questions. And it's also like a relatively young scientific field of study. So, Interesting. Like, there's new information coming out all the time. Mandy Lynn Catron is the author of the new book. How to Fall in Love with Anyone. Our show is produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Lindsay Cradwell. Our editor is Hilary Frank. Our artwork changes every week thanks to Teddy Blanks at Chips.NYC. And our theme music is by Andy Miklas, Casey Holford, Lee Rosphere, Evan Viola. Special thanks to Mia Lobel and Andy Bowers at Panoply. 
Next time on YOY, we do the prescribed four minutes of uninterrupted eye contact here on the podcast. Here's a little taste of what that sounds like. <laughs> 